This delightful program is brought to you by Squarespace. Beautiful websites for beautiful bands like walkthemoonband.com. So the name of their tour is Talking is Hard. It's not that hard, guys. I'm doing it now. Most of the time, I can't stop talking. I mean, you literally would have to cut me off. One time I told... Yeah, 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 Alec Baldwin, we get it. You are talking too much, but you like Squarespace, and we like Squarespace, so we appreciate you getting on our podcast to help us plug one of our great sponsors. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and Jerry's here, and it's stuff you should know from the future, but not really. <laughs> How you doing? I'm fine. Well, good. That's good. Uh, I enjoyed this topic. I thought it was kind of neat. Yeah, it was, it was funny. Like, when you're reading about futurology and futurologists, a.k.a. futurists, mm-hmm. You, you tend to want to make it, like, more than it actually is. Yeah. And when you look into the topic, it keeps having to be beaten down just because of the name alone. Yeah. You sound like a, a little bit like a wackadoo. A wackadoo. You say you're a futurist. A seer. Yeah. And, you know, the, sometimes they're thinking about, they're using these these really neat techniques to predict the future. Um, it, it, they're talking about some really mundane stuff. Yeah. Boring stuff, economic forecasts, things like that. Ugh. How much oil will be left in 30 years, yeah. that kind of thing. But then on the other hand, if you're a futurologist, you may also be tasked with figuring out what technology we're going to be using in 30 years yeah. or, you know, uh, what, what, what color the shiny jumpsuits we're all going to wear will yeah. be, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think uh, one of my favorite things is to look at uh, past future predictions. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, there's nothing that'll make someone look less uh, knowledgeable <laughs> than going back to what they thought the future would look like in the year 2000, right. like back in the 1930s or 40s. Or sometimes some of those things happen. Yeah, and the, then it's amazing. Yeah, then it's like, wow, you, you know, Cause sometimes to this. These guys are like really, really dead on. And I was reading an article, um, I think it was in Harvard Business Review, and it was a post by Paul uh, Sappho who uh, runs a venture capital firm, I believe, called Discern. Yeah. And um, Paul Sefa was saying, like, he was he was trying to get across that sci-fi authors and futurologists, uh-huh. their paths overlap quite a bit, but really there's pretty big distinctions. And even in this article, they got lumped in together. Yeah. Because sci-fi writers do definitely use futurology techniques but paul sefo was saying like yeah but a real futurologist you have to use logic whereas right. if you're a sci-fi writer you can just use your imagination you don't have to back it up with anything yeah, it's you're great. a futurologist you have to use logic that makes sense to the, the whoever's hearing your prediction yeah and i think that's one reason why some sci-fi writers have uh been right on the nose with some future predictions because they're not hampered by logic and they can just uh free form you know yeah but then it's just a lucky guess no i don't think so i think no. they're still applying a lot of the same rules of uh futurology yeah but um they're just not bound by some, you know the the laws of uh well not the laws but you know what I mean. the laws of logic yeah exactly yeah. 
I'm with you. But that's the best science fiction, though, I think, is something that logically makes sense. Yeah. But because then it's, it's just fantasy. Yeah, that's true. So futurology is um, recognizing and assessing potential future events. Uh, I could have sworn Jonathan Strickland wrote this, by the way it read. Yeah. But it was not. No. It's very Strickland-esque. Nicholas Gerbis. Yeah. That's Strickland's alter ego. <laughs> I wonder if it is. I've never met this Nicholas Gerbis. Uh, but the point Gerbis makes, which I think is good, is it's a, a product of our times in many cases. Like, depending on where we are as a society, um, and like, he makes a great point, during the Civil War, there probably weren't a lot of, like, rosy predictions for the future. American Civil War. Sure. But in the Gilded Age, people are a lot more optimistic, uh, optimistic, so they may have, uh, you know, it's a whole different deal. Like during the Cold War, for instance. Right. A lot of paranoia, a lot of cynicism. Mm-hmm. Probably not going to be a rosy outlook for the future. Right. Like during the Gilded Age. When it was rosier. Yeah, way more optimistic than the Cold War. Which is kind of ironic because the Gilded Age didn't have anything to be optimistic about. They were just pretending. Hence the name. Yeah. Um, the The thing is, what you've just said, though, is is kind of an argument against futurology. Because one of the big critiques of it is that a futurologist, they're not doing anything. Even if you're commenting on the past or the future, you're still really commenting about your present, your contemporary time, because that's what you... Or recent past. Sure. Yeah. That's what what you've lived through and experienced. That's all you can really reflect on. Yeah. and, And futurology seeks to go beyond that. Well, yeah, that makes sense, though. If you, like, look at this thing that is happening now, mm-hmm. or just happened, yeah. then what is going to be happening in that thing in 10 years? Right. And it's it's a lot of times based on how the direction it's currently going. Yes. Okay. So, um, uh, Gerbis makes a pretty good, gives a, a good example. that The cell phone grew out of the telegraph, which ultimately is related further back to the smoke signal. Sure. Right? Yeah. But if you were a futurologist hanging out around somebody who was sending smoke signals, would you be able to predict the cell phone? Probably not. Probably not. Could you predict the impact of the automobile or the highway system? Right. Maybe. But would you predict that people would um, have sex in the back seat of a car? Because Mm, it provides a little... Well, I don't think they did. Or uh, Urban sprawl. Yeah. Could you predict uh, exurbs? And yeah. uh, edge cities, uh, just because the highways got built. Yeah, and not a lot of people did, even though a lot of people said there's going to be horseless carriages one day, and it's going they're going to change things big time. People are going to be able to move around a lot more. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that everybody saw every result of the automobile. Um, it was a game changer. Yeah, is as what you could call it. Agreed. <laughs> so, um, what we're saying here, and if it sounds a little weird that we're at once supporting and criticizing futurology, that's basically the fun thing to do when you talk about futurology is um, to criticize it and be awed by it because a lot of times they really are super right. That's right. Uh, Futurology has been around for a long time. Um, I mean, since people were writing fiction, there were people predicting the future. Right. Uh, But as far as... um, Things didn't really get going as far as it being meaningful until uh, after World War II when uh, the U.S. started uh, developing technological forecasting. Basically, mm-hmm. like, 
it was really important to try and see where things were going militarily. Right. Because it was super expensive to develop new technologies. Uh, it could take a long time. So they started thinking, hey, we need to get some people on board that can kind of hopefully predict where we're headed here so we can make the right decisions. Yeah, because if it takes a really long time, like you said, to develop a weapon, by the time you have that weapon in deployed in the field, you're going to need to know it's not already obsolete. Right. The only way to do that is to predict what kind of warfare you're going to be engaged in. Yeah. Because this is a time, like at the end of World War II, so many inventions came out of World War One and Two, war yeah. machine inventions, that, that things were changing so quickly that there was actually, you can kind of put modern futurology into the lap of one guy, an Air Force general named Hap Arnold, who saw that things were changing so fast that his Air Force needed to basically predict the future and see what direction it needed to go. Right. So he looked around and he started tapping people to do that. And one of the first people he tapped was a, a scientist, um, an aeronautical engineer named Theodore von Karman. Yes, he was a super smart dude. Mm-hmm. Um, and he led a team that did predict a lot of stuff, uh, like drones. Um, and as far as you know, the military using drones, not your uncle who flies it around the neighborhood right. just to film stuff. He predicted the rise of Brookstone. <laughs> uh, target-seeking missiles, um, supersonic aircraft, and even the atom bomb. All of this was in one report. Yeah. To Hap Arnold. Like, this crazy. is, like, and this guy knocked it out of the park, but, um, he and his group were very much limited to small academic and military circles. Like, the general public wasn't aware that this was going on. But the, he, his group, Von Karman's group, so accurately foresaw the direction that the, that modern warfare was going. Yeah. That you can very, also very easily make the case that, no, he basically created a roadmap to the future that the Air Force followed. So his, his prophecies were self-fulfilling. Yeah. Because he said, go this way, and the Air Force went that way. Yeah. And created all this stuff. Yeah, and then the, um, the, the military and, uh, well, the, the Rand Corporation specifically, it grew out of the U.S. Air Force and Douglas Aircraft in the mid-40s. They said, well, having one person to say these things is great, but what we need is a, a team and a consensus among this team. So they kind of, uh, well, not kind of, they very much patented a technique uh, they called the Delphi uh, technique, mm-hmm. uh, D-E-L-P-H-I. And that is basically a technique where they're trying to get uh, agreed on consensus from a number of uh, people. So there's there's this very famous story about how um, they, the Navy, I think, lost a, a submarine, a nuclear submarine, or the Russians had lost a submarine, something like that. There was a lost sub that they wanted to find. And they had no idea where it was. So the Navy polled all these different um, different experts and all these different fields that might have something to do with nuclear submarines, weather, yeah. um, aeronautics, uh, people from NOAA, all these people, right? Mm-hmm. And asked them, where do you think the sub is? And no one hit it on the nose. But when they, when they basically used... Um, uh, statistical distribution of these various opinions, yeah. guesses of professionals, it led them right to that sub. And that's what the Delphi technique does, too. It, it takes opinions of experts in various fields and says, what do you think of this? And everybody sends in a questionnaire, 
An- anonymously, and there's no group meeting, so the yeah. group doesn't bow to pressure, sure. no leaders emerge. They're giving their unvarnished opinion, and then after the, those opinions come in, they're, they, they take that information and send it out again. So it goes in rounds and rounds and rounds until they finally come to a group consensus that in the future we're all going to be wearing uh, metallic blue jumpsuits. Yeah, and what they're doing is generating what's known as a scenario. And uh, a guy named Herman Kahn, uh, K-A-H-N, worked with Rand in the uh, 1950s. And he's the one that kind of coined the term scenario as it applies to futurology. Uh, Right. A a pretty good definition I found was a scenario is a a detailed portrait of a plausible future world, uh, one sufficiently vivid that a planner can clearly see and comprehend the problems, challenges, and opportunities that such an environment would present. So it's it's you know it's saying uh, uh, in the future we're going to have uh, a scenario where there are going to be robots in every house. Yeah. Old. Yeah. And one of the biggest ways that they work on scenarios is uh, with something called backcasting, which is starting at the end, which mm-hmm. is you got a robot mm-hmm. in every house, right? And then go backwards to how say, you got there. Yeah. To how we how you got there. Brilliant. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. And uh, scenarios. That's a pretty cool scenario. They can also be as mundane as. Running a fire drill, um, where you're envisioning the fire broke out in the high school gym. Right. And so everybody needs to get out. That's a, that's a scenario. It's as simple as that. Yeah. There, um, the, the weather forecasts or economic forecasts that are run through computer algorithms. The computer algorithms, the model, the process that it's going through is the scenario and it spits out a, a possible prediction. It's almost Same like thing. effect then cause. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Excellently put. Thank you. Uh, so Herman Kahn worked with Rand and, uh. And he, did you look him up at all? Oh yeah. He's one of the inspirations for Dr. Strangelove. Yeah. He, he was described as a super genius. Yeah, he was super smart and he, um, he kind of was a bit of a celebrity at the time. He wrote a book, um, in 1961 called On Thermonuclear War, uh, and then went on to form, uh, left Rand to form the Hudson Institute where he basically was like, we're a group that is going to forecast, uh, the future. So and he became, it was a like super popular book. Yeah. And he spawned a lot of other books, similar books. Well, we need to take a break, but we're, we're getting, we'll get right back to this in a second. So Chuck, you were just talking about Herman Kahn. Being the super genius who is something of a celebrity, I read that Timothy Leary intimated that he had taken acid with him. I believe it. He was a, a part of the inspiration for Doctor Strangelove, and this book that he wrote called um, "The uh, The Year 2000: A Framework for Speculation on the Next 33 Years." Yeah, it basically established this outlook that um, that America and capitalism could do anything thanks to basically technological um, inventiveness. Yeah, here's a... Let's hear some of these. Um, There was a list in that book, uh, 100 uh, technical innovations very likely in the last third of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. 100. Uh, Some of the first 10, multiple applications of lasers. Boom. Uh, High-strength structural materials. Nailed it, wouldn't you think? Alloys. Uh, new or improved materials for equipment and appliances. Now nah, that's that's easy. 
Yeah. Anyone can say that. Sure. There should I, be better material I in the future. I predict that now <laughs> for 2050. Uh, longer range, uh, longer range weather forecasting, more reliable, uh, weather forecasting. No, I don't know about that one. I think that was a miss. Uh, how about this? Here, here are a few of the, uh, other ones. New techniques for cheap and reliable birth control, for sure. Yeah, the pill. I don't know if the pill was around. We should do a whole thing. It may have been the same year because it came out in 67. Was it? Yeah. Uh, use well, this book came out in 67. Right, I mean. right. Uh, widespread use of nuclear reactors for power. Duh. Uh, improved capability to change sex of a children or adult. Gender reassignment. We did a great episode on that. Pervasive business use of computers. Yeah, they're all over. Personal pagers. <laughs> yeah, they came and went. <laughs> and then uh, one of the other ones was home computers to run households and communicate with the outside world. Yeah, the Internet of Things. Yeah. They also predicted um, the rise of the credit economy. Oh, really? Yeah, that we currently are in. Interesting. Yeah, so, um, and that was just like a list, like a oh, sidebar, yeah. basically. Yeah, in, in the this, book. In this book. But the whole the whole idea that um, America and capitalism in the West could invent its way out of any problem we possibly ran across in the future was the this, the premise or the position of this book. And it caused a, an enormous furor yeah. in academic circles. And not just academic circles, because um, this book was one of the first to introduce to the public that there were such things as think tanks like RAND. Yeah, and or that the Club the, of Rome. Yeah, and that these people were sitting there thinking about the future and were writing books about it. And it yeah. kind of became a, a hip thing. But the Club of Rome was basically diametrically opposed to the um, the outlook that uh, Herman Kahn had. And the Club of Rome was a business consortium that uh, conspiracy theorists say is basically the seat of the New World Order. They're still around. They are. Um, and the, the Club of Rome basically said, no, we're, we're, we are establishing the gloom and doom camp that there is such thing as resource depletion, overpopulation, and we are basically doomed. Yeah, I mean, we've we've covered this a lot on the show, different people that have made wild predictions about... We're going to run out of this by this year. Thomas Malthus. Yeah, very Malthusian. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the books that came out of the Club of Rome uh, in 1972 was called Limits to Growth by uh, Danella H. Meadows, Dennis Meadows, Jürgen Randers, and William Behrens at MIT. And they had a very dire apocalyptic outlook of the future, Um, as did a lot of other people at the time. And a, a lot of these were way off base, a lot of these dire predictions. Right. You know, it's well, happened over and over again. Yeah, and so on the Club of Rome's website, they defend the um, the limits to growth. Or no, not the limits to growth. The um, yeah, the limits to growth book, basically saying that it's often miscited as predicting the collapse of civilization. Yeah, um, due to renewable resource um, overuse. Right, and it doesn't do that. But they did use these same kind of techniques that um, Herman Kahn and some of his other colleagues we're coming up with by by taking population um, information, food production data, sure. industrial production, pollution, and non-renewable resource consumption, and then running scenarios through this model that they built using computers. Right. And coming up, the, the scenarios they came up with were kind of grim. The thing is, is even though they missed the mark, they still helped establish a, a very young idea yeah. that... We we can't just you can't just throw your McDonald's styrofoam on the ground. Right. You can't 
drive a car that gets two miles per gallon. Right. Like, we can't live like everything is uh, just forever abundant, that there's no such thing as scarcity. Yeah, it, it's a double-edged sword, though. Like, I totally agree. But then it also, when you're wrong about these things, it gives cynics something yeah, to point to to say, sure. well, see, we didn't run out of oil in the, the early 1980s like you said we would. And we so why didn't. do anything about it? Yeah. I mean, man, that is a great point. It's a, it's a very great point. But at the same time, what you're seeing here between the limits to growth and the year 2000, um, they, we still see this today. With sure. climate change, oh, yeah. you know, it's like, let's do something about climate change. The other people say, no, we can invent our way out of it. And besides, if we do something about climate change, uh, it's going to mess with the economy. Right. And these people are saying, forget about the economy. We are all going to die. Yeah. Or not necessarily forget about the economy, but maybe you can do both. Right. You know? Yeah. You know, my whole deal with that has always been just like, why, why take that risk? Well, we humans aren't very good at like preparing for future risk. Which is, I think, one of the reasons yeah. why futurologists are so revered and, and awed, but also mocked and scorned. Because they're doing something that's almost, almost flies in the face of human nature. Yeah, you're is, really putting yourself out there mm-hmm. when you predict some of this stuff. You are. Uh, oh, there was one other episode that, that just reminded me of, the 10,000-year clock. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a great one. Yeah. So um, the military, the United States military, obviously, has used it for years. Um then beginning, uh, when was this, in the 60s or 70s that business got into it? So in 1972, I think, Royal Dutch Shell okay. heard, somebody at the top heard that there wasn't going to be any oil in by 1985, and they went, what? Yeah, businesses basically said, wait a minute, there are people that can actually use models to determine what the future might look like. Right. How can we use that to make money? Well, let's throw money at them and find out. <laughs> exactly. A couple of other places, too, um, that that were nascent think tanks, and like RAND, was the Stanford Research Institute Futures Group and the California Institute of Technology. Yeah. Um, early, like, kind of think tank uh, breeding grounds. Just smart people walking around thinking about the future. But that wasn't enough. Um, you can't just say, this is what I think it's going to be like. You have to back it up. And we'll talk about how they back it up right after this. How do they back it up? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they use different techniques. If you're a futurist or a futurologist, you're going to be using techniques that um, are pretty recognizable. But the way you put them together... And the things you sort out um, is, is what's going to make you successful or not successful, right? So you you might brainstorm ideas. Yeah, that's probably where you start. Yeah. It's just like blue sky territory, as they say. Yeah. You um, imagine things using scenarios or games. Apparently game theory. But we got to do that at some point. Yeah. I've been avoiding it. because It's so... Like, we it's would, a mind bender. We could mess it up really bad. Yeah. But we'll do it. Um, that, that changed... The, the, uh, futurism field tremendously when they came up with game theory because it's a pretty good way of predicting how people will work. And that's yeah. one of the big confounding factors is it, it, you can predict something, follow every single one of these steps that we're talking about right now. Um, and then people will just cut to the left all of a sudden 
And your yeah. prediction just fell to the wayside because humanity went this way real quick. Yeah, or somebody invented a game changer, uh, a game changing product or right. innovation yeah. that nobody saw coming. Yeah, what's that called? Disruptive technology? Is it? Yeah. That's a good, I like that. Uh, Not a bad band name. Oh, I wonder if it's out there. If if so, it's I'm made sure of somebody. like Silicon Valley rich guys. Yeah, this is like my side band. Right. <laughs> um, do you want to gather professional opinions using, say, the Delphi technique? Yeah. Uh, you want to do historical analysis? Sure. Current trends are very huge and can help you as well. And then, like you were saying, I think you call it backmasking? No. <laughs> That's, uh, turn me on, dead man. <laughs> right. <laughs> From the Beatles. Yeah, that's what they do. They yeah. listen to the Beatles backwards. Uh, where, what was it? It's not backmasking, I know. But where they, where you envision a future and then you work your way backward from it. When you do this, you, you do all this stuff together. And again. Backcasting. Backcasting. Yeah. And when you're, when you're using this along with, um, computer algorithms that can model like the economy or the weather or, um, oil consumption or something like that. You can come up with something that you could rightly say is a prediction or a forecast for the future, where we're going to be. That's right. Again, though, um, just things happen. Like, for example, Herman Kahn did not predict the um, the oil crisis that came the year after he wrote uh, another famous book. Yeah. In 1972, he um, he wrote a, a response, I think, to limits to growth, and just totally missed the oil crisis. Yeah. But how could he predict that? Because the oil crisis came out of the OPEC oil embargo that was punishment for the U.S.'s being involved in the Yom Kippur War. So you couldn't see that coming. No, and that's the big problem with futurology. Yes, exactly. Uh, our own U.S. government has been wrong. The U.S. Department of Interior announced twice in 1939 and then in 1951 that we only had 13 years of oil left. Yeah. It's so weird that both times it was 13 years. They don't like to bother people, so they wait until there's 13 years left and they sound Is that what it is? (laughs) It's just such a specific number. It is. Uh, What else? Well, we've talked about Moore's Law before. That has aged a little better than some other uh, futurology predictions because uh, it has been revised over the years, which is sort of a cheat. A little bit, but still. What I really meant was right. this. I think it went from 18 months to two years or something like that. But the, what's funny is Gerbis stakes his position in this article. He's saying, like, the limits to growth and the other Club of Rome stuff, they missed the mark um, because they predicted catastrophe. Yeah. And Moore's Law predicts um, technological innovation, so it's successful. So yeah. clearly, Gerbis agrees with uh, the Herman Kahn group rather right. than the, the Club of Rome group. I don't think it's subtle. I think you uh, you can't just say like the the gloom and doom camp has just been completely eradicated or proven wrong. Agreed. You know. Yeah, Moore's law. I don't even think we said specifically. It uh, predicts the number of transistors on integrated circuits and in computers doubles every two years. Right. And like we said, it's been updated and it's been pretty consistent. And so, uh, with Herman Kahn's popularity and then the, the big high profile book publishing argument that he got in with the Club of Rome, that led to like a spate of other futurology books that yeah, were Yeah, I remember popular. it being a big deal when I was a kid. I yeah. remember a lot of people talking about, uh, the, the near and far future. The one that I ran across in this article that I had heard of but I didn't know anything about is Alvin Toffler's Future Shock. 
Oh, I remember that, I think. Did you read it? No. The the cover, I guarantee, would just give you nostalgia, I'm oh, sure. Oh, really? Um, but it came out in 1970, and it predicts a future where too much rapid change, technological change and advancement, it happens too quickly, and people get all sorts of stressed and just worn out and um, basically have all all manner of terrible um, reactions to it. And I'm like, well, well that guy predicted 2015. So like a person's... Emotions couldn't handle. Yeah, we're just overwhelmed. Uh, okay. Through too much rapid technological innovation, happens too quick. Do you think we're overwhelmed? Like I get stressed out by like say social media or something like that. Yeah. I wonder if it's a certain like, people of a certain age. Maybe. Yeah, I, I would guess if you're born into it, you're used to it. So it would probably more more likely apply to a transition population like right. us. The transitional generation, is that what we are? It, don't you get stressed by social media? Don't you get, like, just tense and... Uh, yeah, I mean, I kind of just hate it. Or having, like, having information, all this information, and yeah. all of it's just so thin. Yeah. Content-wise or, or value-wise, but there's yeah, tons of it. Yeah. And it's always coming at you. Yep, always. That stuff wears me out. It I, wears me out, too. I got the future shock, Chuck. <laughs> you, got, you got the Jimmy legs? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I totally agree. I'm like that. I just want to shut it all down. Just shh, everybody. Not podcasts, though. (laughs) (laughs) That should live on. Uh, So we talked about science fiction writers and how they are uh, easily off the hook because they're just writers, right? They're not supposed to predict the future. Um, But they have been, you can't dismiss it because they've been on the money or close to it a lot over the years. Yeah. Because like we said, they're not hampered by uh, the rational laws of, of today they can just say whatever they want and if they're wrong it's like hey dude i'm just writing stuff yes this is fiction right um but uh a few of the highlights um jules verne mid-19th century predicted uh uh, going to the moon in a spacecraft not only that so he he predicted it would be shot out of a a cannon basically yeah the gun um but the thing that he really got though was that he he placed the moon shot in Florida, yeah, like 137 miles from Cape Canaveral, where they do launch rockets yeah. to the moon. Not bad. No, and for the same reason too, like that it was it's close to the equator. Oh, is that why? That's one of the reasons why. Plus, Cape Canaveral is largely protected uh-huh. um, by the Gulf Stream right. from hurricanes. Like as a hurricane comes ashore, uh-huh. right before it starts to get to Canaveral, it goes out again, right, and then hits North Carolina. Interesting. That, that'd be an interesting conversation to have been in on. Like, oh, when they were picking places? Yeah, like where should we launch yeah. this? I mean, where should we put all of our money into? Right. H.G. Uh, Wells, uh, he predicted tanks Yeah, he was good at it. Supposedly, he was the first guy to really think of himself as a futurist. He predicted the atom bomb in 1908, aerial bombing in 1908. Uh, what the, the, the name Robot was actually coined by a science fiction writer, a mm-hmm. Czech writer named uh, Karl Kapek. And um, in 1921, he named robots. I think the all-time winner, though, is Hugo Gernsbach. And Hugo Gernsbach, if you're into science fiction, you recognize his first name because he's who the Hugo Award is yeah. named after. You may also recognize his last name, too, if you're a Hugo Gernsbach fan. But back in, uh, <laughs> I think, the 1910s, yeah, he was writing. Yeah, he wrote a book called Ralph One Two Four C Forty One Plus. 
He predicted everything in this. Yeah. You know what that means? It's actually a play on words. Uh, one, two, it means one, two, four, C for one another. You get it? Wow, yeah, that's great. One, two, four, C, four, one, and then another is the plus sign. Yeah, yeah. That, that alone, I was sold. Yeah. I was like, I love this guy. It's just like that Van Halen album, OU812. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so what has he predicted? He predicted, uh, solar power, like the, the realistic use of solar power. Uh-huh. Uh, he predicted plastics, uh, video phones, tape recorders, um, jukeboxes, loudspeakers, tinfoil, rust proof steel, synthetic fabrics, uh, all in one book. And he's famous in the Hugo Awards named after him because he wanted to make science fiction more science based. Yeah. You know, using that same logic. So he would have been a very, um, like almost a father of futurology. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know? Uh, here's a few other things that, uh, from that book. Um, this one to me, I'm surprised no one's done this yet. The appetizer, which is at a restaurant in a, in an advanced, scientifically advanced restaurant. It'll be a room that you wait in before you get your table that's flooded with gases that make you hungry. Oh, yeah. Not bad. Yeah. Just have a seat in the appetizer room. Your right. table will be ready shortly. <laughs> There's uh, like bloody fingernails scratched into the walls <laughs> as people are trying to get to the other room where the food is. Uh, the tele- the telautograph, which is basically a fax machine. Okay. Uh, the telephot, uh, which was a picture phone. Mm-hmm. Um, it had a universal translator where they translate any language right there on your in your hand. Yeah. Not bad. And then uh, this one I love, the... Uh, Vacation City was a suspended city in a, a domed suspended city, 20,000 feet in the air, uh, that used a device that nullified gravity. And in Vacation City, no mechanical devices are permitted because it was supposed to be a true escape That's awesome. from the mechanized world. Waiting for that one. And this was in 1911. Yeah. He predicted just that there would be a need for that. That's like that town in um, West Virginia. Green something, West Virginia, where the people who have electromagnetic sensitivity go because you're not allowed to have any electromagnetic stuff. Oh, really? Because there's like a radio telescope or there's something there that be could be interfered with. Yeah. And you could go be Amish. Can you just be Amish? No. Like, hey, I want to be Amish. If you're Harrison Ford, you could be. Yeah, or Woody Harrelson. <laughs> yeah. Right? You got anything else? How about these predictions for the future? There's a couple in here that are kind of funny. Ten predictions that missed the mark. And these are real predictions. Um, in 1967, uh, U.S. News and World Report said that uh, by the end of the century, we will launch our freight across the continent with missiles. Like yeah. you order something from Amazon in New York, instead of having a fulfillment center nearby, right? they just put it in a missile and shoot it to you. Yeah. Didn't happen. Um, no, but drones are coming. Uh, are they really? Are they still on that? Probably. Okay. Uh, in 1955, a guy named Alex Lewitt predicted nuclear power vacuum cleaners. <laughs> uh, this one, I think, would be pretty great. Uh, dissolving dishes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, asked what it would be like in the year 2000, a science writer named uh, Waldemar Kampfert. There's a lot of... Man, one, two, three, four, five. He's the fabulous six. science writer with the funny name. Consonants in a row. Um, he said you would basically... Uh, Put your plate in 250-degree water at the end, and it would just dissolve it. <laughs> no more dishwashing. Uh, 
Bucky Fuller predicted that Canada would be a subtropical climate because we would build a dome over it. And that didn't happen. No, it didn't. Which is strange because Bucky Fuller was a pretty sharp dude. Uh, here's another one. Um, was he really? Yeah, Buckminster Fuller. Oh, I didn't pick up on that. He's who Buckyballs are named after. Really? Mm-hmm. Why? I don't know. He, he may have invented them. I'm not sure. Huh. What's but a Buckyball? It's the those little balls that are magnetic spheres that like you can oh, shape into awesome. Buckyballs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here's one. A Scottish geneticist that um, <clears throat> said in the 1920s that uh, in the future, one-third of the babies would not be born. Oh, only one-third would be born as a result of pregnancy. And the other babies would be born in a lab. Would they be grown, basically? Exogenesis. Yeah. Uh, here's the last one, Chuck. You ready? 1975, ready. the Research Institute of America, which sounds pretty smart, said that um, by 1975, I'm sorry, this is several years before that, we would all be driving um, personal helicopters. Yeah. Did not pan out. Probably never will. I don't know if I'd want a personal helicopter. You know, I was, uh, for Emily's birthday, I rented a cabin in the North Georgia mountains. Mm-hmm. Did you take friends. a personal helicopter there? No, but I was sitting on the deck, we all were, <clears throat> and way across the valley on the side of a mountain was this huge, huge house. And I heard a sound of a helicopter, and I was like, and I saw a blinking light. I got out the binoculars, and this dude had a helicopter. Wow. And he took it, and he flew it down about two miles to the lake at the bottom of the valley. Uh-huh. And uh, I guess he has a lake house and a mountain house. And the easiest way to get there is to make the four-minute helicopter flight. That's crazy. Yeah. It, wow. was, it was pretty amazing. Wow. I want to know who that guy is. And not guy. could be a lady. Yeah, it could be. What am I saying? could be Carly Fiorina. Yeah. Who's that? She's the, the woman who's running for GOP president candidate. Oh, right. Fiorina. That's right. Gotcha. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm done. Oh, oh sorry. Uh, let's see. Well, uh, if you want to know more about futurology, you can type that word into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And since Chuck had an anecdote about helicopters, it's time for listener mail. Uh, it sort of looked like one of those Magnum PI ones, too. Well, if I did have a personal helicopter, it would it look was, an awful lot like that. I'm sure it would. Uh, hey guys, my name is Shelby. I'm honored for you to be reading this. Uh, my husband and I love your show, and you've solved our dilemma as to what to listen to in our car together. I want to let you know you did a great job on the HIV AIDS podcast. However, I think you missed telling a really important story about the AIDS crisis. Just before the AIDS crisis broke, a method for treating hemophilia uh, called clotting factor concentrate was developed. It finally let those suffering from the disease live into adulthood and completely change the landscape of the, the disorder. By the time HIV was discovered to be a blood-borne virus, many of those suffering from hemophilia already had it, not to mention that many also contracted hepatitis. However, the pharmaceutical companies did not begin to pasteurize the drug in spite of their knowledge that it was spreading HIV until a strong public outcry prompted a government intervention. I think the story is not told often enough, and the injustice that these individuals suffered at the hands of uh, Big Pharma is undoubtedly one of the greatest our country has seen. Uh, There's an extremely informative and sad documentary on the topic called Bad Blood, colon, a cautionary tale. Anyway, that's about it. Uh, And I'm sorry if I bummed everyone out. (laughs) That is is from Shelby. Shelby, thank you for not only that illuminating email, 
But also the documentary recommendation. We're always looking for those. Absolutely. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 